Thank you, Jim. Good morning. Welcome. Happy New Year to all. It's good to see my brothers and sisters here this morning on this first Sunday of the new year. Al Baker greeted me a moment ago and said that when he saw the sermon title up there and saw weirdness, he knew that it had to be me preaching. <laughs> I don't quite get that. Actually, I get that. Well, we, here we are in a new year. Let me ask a question. Does anybody really make New Year's resolutions anymore? Okay. Some of us do. Some of us have made New Year's resolutions. Well, New Year's resolutions can be a helpful exercise, but for many of us, New Year's resolutions just end up being a to-do list for the next week or two, right? And they quickly fall by the wayside in the face of everyday life. Or some of us are more kind of like this cat. This cat has option A, lose some weight. Option B, buy a bigger basket. Anybody have New Year's resolutions like that where you give yourself just a little bit of leeway? Or some of us fail to make very challenging resolutions at all. We make our resolutions way too easily achievable, like this one. Eat more cake, watch more TV. I'm all in with that one. Others of us are like this rooster, and I think this is probably the kind of New Year's resolution that Joel Vassanen makes. No matter how badly life treated you last year, just walk tall with your head held high. This is a brand new year, baby. Now, does, doesn't that sound like one Joel would make? <laughs> For a long time, I thought about uh, the celebration you always see in Times Square on New Year's Eve, and I didn't quite understand why people would be out there, usually in the cold, sometimes in the snow, with hundreds of thousands of other people on New Year's Eve, just to see one year turn into the next. But as I thought about that, I think the desire, and for some the need to celebrate a new year, is inherent in us as human beings. Not necessarily the new year, but the idea that there's always a fresh start, there's always a new beginning. And I think that desire is what's being reflected in that. Of course, when we're believers in Christ or not, we understand innately that life is made of fresh starts and new beginnings. And of Christ, of course, we understand this in a deeper way, don't we? His mercies are new every morning. We have the gift of repentance. We have the gift of renewal that we can access day by day in Christ. There's redemption from our past. So I think we understand this when we think about it that way. If we look back at 2015 and we begin to think about these things on the first Sunday of 2016, I think most of us will agree that 2015 was a particularly challenging year. Many of us just as individuals and the things we face, but especially as believers in our culture. In many significant ways, 2016 is dawning as a new world for us as believers. In 2015, we saw thousands of years of a mostly common understanding of what marriage is and what it means. We saw it completely redefined. We're now seeing that what it means to be a male and a female is also being completely redefined based solely on what a person thinks and feels exclusive of biological reality. We saw exposed the evil practice of unborn babies' body parts being sold. And not only did our nation respond with a collective yawn, but many responded by defending this barbarism. And the cultural change seemed to happen so fast, didn't it? 
It really didn't if you think about it. We've seen it coming for some time. What's more, we're seeing hints of things to come for the church. Tell me if you don't see our Western culture described in these words from Paul to the Romans, chapter 1, beginning with verse 20. We're going to start with verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now think about that last verse, verse 32. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. We're seeing this today. Not just approval, but even celebration of the things that the vast majority of people, even just a decade ago, could not approve of. The Greek word here for approval implies taking pleasure in. So it's not simple tolerance, it's affirmation. And because we as believers of the Word of God cannot, must not, give approval to or affirm the sinful segments of our culture, we're seeing hints of the future as believers in exile strangers in our own land. It's the same reality that our forefathers in the faith faced in different contexts in Scripture. We're facing the reality now that in many ways we are in a minority. That's we who are in Christ, who are followers of Scripture, who believe in the Word of God. According to one recent Gallup survey, the overall trend clearly points to a higher level of acceptance of a number of behaviors that the Bible clearly condemns In fact, notes Gallup, the moral acceptability ratings for the issues measured since the early 2000s are at record highs. Today, for example, a majority of Americans believe that what the Bible calls sexual immorality between adults and homosexual behavior 
and having a child outside of marriage and doctor-assisted killing and the killings of humans in the earliest stages of their development to be quote-unquote morally acceptable. More people believe these things are morally acceptable today than don't believe they are morally acceptable. Now, that a majority of Americans find no sin in these behaviors stands completely at odds with the same polls which show that the vast majority of Americans, 7 out of 10 Americans, continue to identify with some sort of Christianity. What's wrong with this picture? It means that a very large percentage of people who consider themselves to be Christians also think that behavior that the Bible clearly identifies as sinful is okay. The root issue is an unwillingness of Bible-believing Christians to simply state you can't be obedient to Christ and consider behavior he abhors and condemns to be morally acceptable. So here we are. Another thing we're seeing today is that there's a more clear separation between Christians who believe and practice what the Word of God teaches and those who decide to pick and choose which parts of the Bible that they're going to believe and follow. And that clarity of separation, let me tell you that, that clarity of separation is a good thing. It's a good thing. Let me, let's listen for a minute to a clip from a, a message by Russell Moore. Now, as 
American culture secularizes, there are some things that are changing and some things that are not. One of the narratives that is very popular is that Christianity itself is being eviscerated in this country. As Gabe mentioned some moments ago, that is clearly not true. Christianity is vital and the church is marching onward and upward uh, in this country. What is changing, though, is that nominal cultural Christianity, the understanding that in order for me to be the sort of person that I want to view myself as being, in order to be the protagonist in an American, in an American narrative, I must be baptized, that is changing. So what we're seeing is a rapture of nominal, cultural, gospel-free Christianity in this country, not a rapture of Christianity itself. What is being taken away is a kind of God and country badge Christianity that sees Jesus as the embodiment of certain values that are being shared rather than as a crucified and resurrected world ruler. As a matter of fact, it's very difficult to argue that Christianity, the way it is communicated in the New Testament, the message of the scandal of the cross, was ever a majority in this country. It was always a word that called the status quo to judgment. But what is gone is the sort of Christianity that can be seen in the Bible Belt, in that roadside strip club that puts Happy Birthday Jesus on the sign outside at Christmas time. The sort of Christianity that coexists with everyday rebellion against Christian moral norms and Christian theological norms with no seeming conflict between those two things. Okay, so now there is a conflict, isn't there? There is a conflict between what the Bible declares and what our culture decides is right or wrong. And again, that's a good thing. But it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it easy. What it does is force us as believers to make some decisions, to make some decisions about how are we going to relate to the culture that surrounds us, the culture that we swim in every day. Now, if it was just all out there, perhaps it would be easier, right? If it was just all out there, in other words, not really affecting any of us personally, perhaps then we could kind of just shake our heads and lament how our society is sliding more and more into the moral sewer and thank God that we're redeemed and not like them and go on with our lives. But in reality, as attractive as that option might feel, as that might seem, that's not a real option. Because the world will impose itself on us. It will try to squeeze us into its mold. And we will have to make decisions about how we relate to the world. I have some friends who have faced some very difficult decisions just in recent months because they've had family members who forced them to figure this out. How are we going to relate to all these cultural changes? And uh, one of these friends has a family member who's a lesbian and invited my friend to come to her wedding to her female partner. My friend made the choice that because what he believes about marriage is biblical, he could not attend the wedding. He didn't reject this woman. He didn't say he wanted nothing to do with her. 
He just said as winsomely as he possibly could that he couldn't affirm the marriage by attending the wedding. And he had Romans 132 in mind as he did this. In fact, he agonized for days praying, writing, and rewriting his response so that he would do his very best to say the right things in as loving and winsome a way as he could. But you know what? It wasn't enough. In the mind of this woman and her family, my friend was rejecting her and being hateful and judgmental. They didn't want an explanation. They wanted full affirmation and nothing less would do. And now there's a rift in this relationship. It reminded me of this passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 18. It says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Did you catch that last verse? In verse 18, that last verse says, If possible, Paul wrote to the Romans, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The implication is clear here, isn't it? Sometimes it's not possible to have peace. Sometimes you can say absolutely everything right. You can have the perfect approach. You can have the perfect demeanor. You can have all the right words. And still, despite that, some will not allow peace in a relationship. And they will take offense. Now, let's be quick to note that there's also a clear admonition to us as believers that we should do everything we can to do everything right as far as it depends on us. We do have a responsibility here. And this, let's be honest, this is where many Christians have fallen short. Sometimes there is no real love extended in those relationships where we have a serious disagreement about right and wrong. So we must always, always examine our hearts first, choose our words very carefully, and choose to bless rather than curse them. Yet this passage is also just as clear that even when we do bless, Peace doesn't depend entirely on what we say or what we do. It doesn't all depend on us. In fact, the old adage, love the sinner but hate the sin, we've heard that for years, right? You know what? It doesn't fly anymore, whether it's true or not. And that's because in the case of so many sexual sins, and especially homosexual behavior, in the minds of those who are caught up in those sins, what we call the sinner and the sin are one and the same. Their identity is so tied up in their sin that they are unable to see it as a behavior alone. It's who they are. So when we say we hate the sin, in their eyes we're hating the sinner too. And as a result, Christians who stand firm on sin issues like this are now in the minds of much of our culture no better than hateful racist bigots. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Considering all these realities, how are we to respond to these new realities in our society? Over the past many months, as these new realities have played out in our culture, I've read quite a bit. I've read widely about suggested ways to respond 
from a variety of different believers in a different perspective. One seemingly popular suggestion has been labeled the Benedict option. Anybody read about that? Okay. The Benedict option. It's been labeled the Benedict option. It's by a writer named Rod Dreher. It's named after Benedict, St. Benedict of Nursia, who lived from 480 to 543. And this man left a falling and decadent Roman Empire and founded a community of men dedicated to prayer. And this became the Benedictine order of monks. And over the next centuries, they kept the faith alive throughout Europe. As Europe became a darker and more barbarian continent than it already was, the Benedictines laid the groundwork for the rebirth of Christian society in the former Western Roman Empire. Essentially, what they did is they preserved the Christian faith for the future in a dark time. Now, as applied to our modern culture, the Benedict option is not necessarily suggesting that we retreat into monasteries to escape our culture. Uh, Dreyer, who came up with the idea of the Benedict option, he writes that my argument is that Christians had better prepare for this. We are fighting a losing game. The country is not ours anymore. This is not our culture anymore. Maybe it never was our real home, but we have got to prepare ourselves and our families and our churches through intentional living, through disciplined living, and through an awareness of the cultural moment to deal with perhaps even persecution. We don't have the luxury of this engagement. We've got to protect our institutions as best we can. What I'm trying to say to tell Christians is it's not enough to be a knight. You have to be a gardener too. So I think by gardening, what he means is that we have to cultivate our faith to be a very strong faith, to be a vital faith. And if we don't, it won't withstand the cultural influences. The cultural influences will come to own us in the church too. There are other approaches to our declining culture. Some of those have different labels. There's another one called the Jeremiah option, for example. It's taken from the people of Israel in exile, as recalled in the book of Jeremiah. They were exiled, if you remember, because they were under God's judgment. We read in Jeremiah 29.1, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent them from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then picking up with verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the idea here with the so-called Jeremiah option is that we behave just as God instructed the Israelites to behave when they were in exile in Babylon. Seek the peace, seek the prosperity of the city, build houses, settle down, plant gardens. In other words, continue to be productive and useful citizens even under pagan rule. Now, if you compare the two approaches that we just mentioned, the Benedict option a minute ago and the Jeremiah option now, if you compare those, the main difference in the two seems to me to be one of tone. 
The Jeremiah option is kind of more optimistic and relaxed. But the Benedict option could be seen as a little bit more pessimistic and maybe even a little bit defensive. In the Benedict option, the concern is that Christians will lose a sense of holiness as the world invades our Christian culture too. And in doing that, it might make us indistinguishable from the rest of the world. Dreyer believes that the primary difference between the Benedict, which was his idea, and the Jeremiah options is that Jeremiah option is more optimistic that the exiles can avoid assimilation. You understand what I mean when I say assimilation? It means getting sucked into, owned by something, right? Our culture does have a little bit of the Borg going for it. The Borg, for those of you who are uninitiated in the Star Trek universe, are a race of hybrid humanoid and cyborg whose only goal is to assimilate or destroy other peoples and worlds, taking only the best of their knowledge and their technology, and then moving on to other conquests. The Borg would always introduce themselves in a very genial manner. They would say something like this. And you hear the explosion at the end, that kind of gives you the idea of how uh, kind and gentle their introduction was. Resistance is futile, they said. You will be assimilated. Apart from Christ, here's a truth here, folks, we will be assimilated. Apart from Christ, we will be assimilated into our culture. And even when we are in Christ, it's something we must be on guard against. As we noted earlier, the world will squeeze you into its mold. Without the armor of God at our disposal, we're really in trouble, folks. We're never immune from being owned by the world, by its values, by its attitudes, rather than God's word and his character, his love, his mercy, his spirit. So I wouldn't dismiss either the Benedict option on the one hand, which has some good points, or the Jeremiah option on the other hand. I think a lot of these things that I've read in recent weeks and months, there's some good thoughts in all of them. I think there's biblical truth. I think there's needed elements in all of them. Let me just quickly highlight a few other labels that writers have applied to the various approaches of how Christians can and should respond in this new reality. There's retrenchment. In other words, get back into the trenches, right? And let's be prepared to fight. There's isolation. Sounds almost Amish, doesn't it? There's outrage. Boy, don't we live in a culture of outrage where everybody is outraged about anything that's said or done? And Christians are doing the same thing sometimes. We're outraged about everything. Bomb shelter. I think you get that one. Ultimate fighter. Chameleon. Alternate kingdom. Now, most of these have some good points if you think about what they are prescribing here. Well, maybe not bomb shelter. Maybe not so much bomb shelter. That's kind of a survivalist approach, isn't it? In other words, let's totally abandon our culture to its own devices. Let them lead each other to hell. And we'll go find a place that's immune from the culture and its values so we won't be infected. At least we'll be safe. I can dismiss that one quite easily with the words of Jesus. Jesus was praying to God the Father, and he was praying for his disciples and us in John 17, verses 15 and 16. And he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. So there you go. 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So ultimately, what do we want? What do we want as a response? I believe what we all want as we learn to live as exiles in a culture that's not changing for the better is four things. I think we all want to respond faithfully to God and we want to trust in his perfect plan. I think we want to be guided by Scripture in all that we do and in every way we live, how we live. I think we want to be his instruments in seeking and saving the lost. Otherwise, why aren't we in heaven now? And I think we want to have courage. And I think we want to stand firm in the face of at least criticism and ostracism, which is here and coming. And at most, we want to stand firm and strong in the face of persecution should that day come to our nation. Those things are things which have not changed and should not change regardless of how the cultural winds that blow hard all around us seek to move us off center. They are true today. They were true when Jesus walked the earth. They were true when the New Testament church was facing a world in many ways significantly more decadent than the world that we're living in. And that's maybe hard for some of us to believe, but it's true. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. We read just a few verses earlier in John 7 that Jesus spoke these words to his biological brothers, meaning James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon. And at this point, his brothers didn't believe in Jesus. When Jesus said this, they didn't believe him. And that's why Jesus could say here that the world cannot hate you. They didn't believe in him. There was nothing to hate. And then he can say in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. There's the difference. But here's the point. The gospel is the good news that Jesus purchased our salvation, our pardon, with his own blood. It's the good news that we can't earn it. We can't earn our salvation. But the purchase of our salvation required something. It required the shedding of his blood. Why? Because we have all sinned. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. So that's why the world hates Jesus. At least they hate the Jesus that's fully revealed in the word of God. He exposes and reveals our sins. Did you notice that they don't hate the Jesus who says, love one another, forgive one another, let the little children come to me? The Jesus who said to the adulterous woman, neither do I condemn you. But they do hate the exclusive Jesus. They do hate the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. They do hate Jesus, the judge, who said in Matthew 25, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So which Jesus are we going to believe, folks? Which Jesus are we going to follow? Which one? The world hated Jesus, in other words, because of the implications of his witness. If his life was true, then theirs was false. If his life were wholesome, then theirs was corrupt. We see Paul and Peter in their letters to the early church addressing these same issues we face today. They spoke to a Christian church in their day which knew from experience what it meant to be an exile, to be a stranger, what it was like to be totally at odds with the morality of the culture in which they lived. And there was no hint of retreat or isolation in their words. There was a recognition that the culture was the polar opposite of how they were to live, but then it was always followed by admonitions to live differently in Christ. Let's read from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter says that unbelievers live lawless lives, and they are surprised that Christians don't. They don't get it. Unbelievers don't get it. The word for surprised here is translated strange things in another place in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. The word translated malign is the same word from which we get our English word blaspheme. It means slander, revile, defame, or speak irreverently or disrespectfully about. Because we as believers are no longer slaves to sin, we have new desires. We have desires to please God. We have desires to be obedient to Him. And you know what? That's just strange to our world. It's strange. It's weird. They can't understand it. So we're exiles. We're aliens, folks. We're just weird. You know what? It's not cool to be a genuine believer anymore. I don't know if it ever really was, but it's certainly not anymore. It's not cool to be a genuine believer whose life reflects what we believe. I was once asked by some business colleagues why I didn't want to go with them to the topless bars that they would always go to when they were traveling on business. They really did not understand why I wouldn't or couldn't do that. It was strange or weird to them. It's like, huh? Why not? I explained to them that I felt like if I did that, I would be cheating on my wife. And they said, you're just looking, you know. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. So we see here and in other places in the New Testament that this perspective that the world has about believers is something we should expect. We should expect this. We are past the era, folks, if we were ever there. But we're definitely now past that where most people will like us as believers most of the time, and that should not surprise us. But it also... And here's another important part of this. It also cannot change what we believe. 
Here's another video clip, Russell Moore. So the New Testament church has never had an era in which they were liked or understood or embraced by the larger culture. Because they were committed to Jesus, they were socially ostracized, they were isolated, and they were often physically attacked. We know about that kind of persecution. The Apostle Paul was particularly concerned about the Thessalonian church he founded, and he wrote this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left, at, left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor 
would be in vain. So this was a church that Paul founded, and he was worried about what the circumstances that this church was facing would mean to their faith. Were they going to hang in there? Were they going to abandon their faith because of what they were facing? Let's note a few key verses here. In verse 3, he wrote, we were destined for this. Now, how many of you have heard that as a promise of God? We were destined for this. In verse 2, he says he wanted to be certain that they were established and exhorted in their faith so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. You know, folks, we too are destined for this. Just because most of us haven't experienced this kind of resistance to our faith in any real way yet doesn't mean that we never will. Yet we also see clearly that Paul's goal was that they stand firm. He wanted them to stand firm. Peter's goal in 1 Peter was the same, but it was more than that, as I'm sure was Paul's. It included the idea that though we were to be considered strange, though though we would be maligned, that we be so active in good deeds that it attracts the attention of the world. 1 Peter 2.15, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 1 Peter 3.16, have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we believers, apparently, according to Paul and Peter both, are to be two different things. We're supposed to be weird. We're supposed to be totally out of sync with our culture in terms of our faith, what we believe, and practice. I heard somebody say once that uh, he had a conversation with somebody and they said something along the lines, I can't believe that you uh, don't embrace same-sex marriage. And he says, you wouldn't believe some of the other things that I believe. I believe that God created the world. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. I believe that he was resurrected from the dead. And I believe he's coming again. So that's just an ancillary belief that I have. These things are weirder still. If you're going to embrace your weirdness, let's embrace all of it, folks, right? We're supposed to be weird, totally out of sync. But we're also supposed to be winsome. Standing firm, not just on the truth that the Word teaches us, but to be standing strong in good deeds. And not just good deeds that avoid bad behavior, and that's certainly important, but proactively reaching out to bless those who persecute us, whatever that persecution might look like, whether it's just simple ostracism, making fun of us, isolating us, whatever. What the Apostle Peter contributes to this debate, among other things, is this. Baby boomers like me, who grew up with the assumed overlap between Christian morality and cultural expectations, and millennials who desperately want to be hip and cool, must both joyfully embrace the calling to be weirdos. It is not our culture, and we are not cool. And with just as much resolve and joy, we must set our faces to be winsome, not by cowering before the slander or desperately trying to avoid being maligned, but by getting up every morning dreaming of what good deeds can be done today. What fresh way can I bless my enemies or anyone in need. The Apostle Peter is calling for a special breed, not the kind of conservative who gives all his energy to defending his weirdo status, and not the kind 
of liberal who will embrace any compromise necessary to avoid being a weirdo, but rather a breed that is courageous enough to be joyfully weird and compassionate enough to be zealous for good deeds. Can we be joyfully weird, folks? Can we be zealous for good deeds at the same time? So how do we live as exiles? How do we live as exiles? The last word is going to go to God's word this morning. And of course, this isn't the whole answer, but it's an important part of the answer because we need to believe and live righteously, not bowing to the molding and shaping influence of our culture. We need to stand firm on the truth, and the truth is in the word of God. And we also need to love and serve our culture with unmistakably good deeds, hoping and praying that these good deeds will be noticed by the world and will glorify the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the strategy Peter admonished the early church to adopt. And so let's close with this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have your word to guide us and direct us. We thank you, Father, for this call we see from your word to be strangers, to be aliens, to be exiles, and to be weird, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that the things that we believe because your word teaches them, even though the world sees them to be weird, that we would be a people who stand firm, believing what you have spoken to us with such clarity in your word and what you have spoken to your church throughout 2,000 years of church history. And Father, we hear the phrase so often being on the right side of history and how people who oppose things like same-sex marriage are on the wrong side of history. But Father, we know that you are the Lord of history. And so, Father, we submit to you. We submit to you. We submit to your word. We submit to your spirit. At the same time, Heavenly Father, help us to not get defensive about being weird. Help us not to get defensive. And let's not be those people who are outraged every time Christians are insulted, every time our faith is undermined in some way, Lord. But let us be winsome believers. Let us be believers who are known for their good deeds, are known for the love of Christ, Lord, that they will know that we are believers because we love them. Lord, even when people don't understand, even when they don't get it, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to love them in the face of that. And Lord, that that indeed would bring those who you have chosen into your kingdom. We thank you, Father. The beginning of this new year, as we consider these things, as we consider entering a new chapter in the life of the church in America now. As we consider this new chapter, Father, we do pray that you should help us embrace our weirdness, Lord, and live as exiles who are totally and completely faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.